When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. In White God, a pack of wild dogs start an uprising against their human oppressors. It's available on demand now. A mysterious stranger interrupts a group of teenagers' Skype phone call in the spooky tech horror thriller Unfriended. Available on demand on August 11th. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on Cable. The Art House is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. And on this edition of SVU, Matt spits some sweet rhymes while I lay down some tasty hooks as we review the music industry melodrama Beyond the Lights. And by the way, Allison, your purple hair looks great and very thematically appropriate. Oh, I thank you. But you know, I feel like making me wear this blouse made out of gold chains is, is a bit much. I mean, it's an audio podcast. No one can see it. Look, do you want to win a Billboard Award or not? <laughs> now get your head in the game. <laughs> Anyway, later in the show, we'll bring you cue shots where we recommend some other titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all centered on a common theme. Inspired by Beyond the Lights, we really got interested in doing a podcast about lighting. We were going to go beyond the lights, literally. Key lights, fill lights. I bought $4,000 worth of gaffer's tape. I don't even know what gaffer's tape is, Allison. (laughs) And then Allison was like... Well, that sounds kind of boring, and let's instead do, like, movies set in and around the music industry. It might make more sense. And I I suppose she's right, but I don't know what I'm going to do with all this gaffer's tape, Allison. What am I going to do with it? Well, you do live in Brooklyn. You could start a business making wallets and purses out of it. (laughs) Okay, that's a good idea. Yeah. And I have to say, I think the other idea is probably better in the long run. Movies about the music business. That'll be our topic on this episode. But first up, it's opening break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films that are new on demand. Allison, what are our picks this week? Well, first up, we have a movie I like a lot, and I'm, I encourage all of you to see it on demand if you can't see it in theaters. It is Cop Car, which will be available on demand on August 14th. A movie that combines the, the kind of innocent child's eye perspective of like an 80s kids movie with this like dark Coen Brothers action and, uh, and and it combines them very well. It's a movie about these two boys who are just fooling around in the fields. They've run away, though it's the kind of running away where you think they might just go home at the end of the day and their parents might never notice. And then they come across an empty sheriff's car in the middle of nowhere and find that not only is it unlocked, 
the keys are in there and they do what any boys looking for adventure <laughs> and who haven't thought a lot about consequences might want to do. They take it. Uh, and obviously it isn't abandoned. It belongs to the local sheriff who's played by Kevin Bacon. Uh, and who turns out to be not a very nice guy. In fact, he turns out to be someone you really don't want to get entangled with. How far do you think they've gone? 50 miles. I think we're almost to the woods. Get down. What? The cop car. There's no one in there. No way. Try this one. Awesome. What if someone sees us? We'll just tell them we're cops. Good idea. Uh, this is a movie directed by John Watts, who was recently picked up to direct the new Spider-Man Yes, reboot. that makes this a very interesting uh, movie yeah. to me. Yeah, you know, I have very little interest at this point in seeing the Spider-Man story Understandable, start over again. understandable. But the way that this movie really gets inside like a child's eye view and the characters in this are obviously quite a bit younger than even the new high school age Spider-Man will sure, be. Sure. But the way he gets inside the way they play and talk is like really well done. Oh. It's, there's no bit of condescension at all. He manages to return the movie there, even as we snap out of that perspective a lot and suddenly see things terrifyingly from an adult passing by. Uh, but I, I, it also, the movie uses this really well for scenes that are totally alarming in which, for instance, the boys try and figure out how to shoot the guns that they find in the backseat or try and teach themselves, you know, realize that the car doesn't stop by itself because it's an automatic, uh, even if they're not pressing on the gas. So it's a really kind of exciting movie in a way that I will say... Content-wise, they don't—they're not similar at all. But it does remind me a bit of Blue Ruin, which is another movie we liked that manages to get a lot of like action and kind of tension out of a, a fairly low-budget and deliberately restricted scenario. So it's an impressive piece of filmmaking, and it's also a lot of fun. Slash, uh, will have you incredibly nervous. That is Cop Car, and it is available on demand on August fourteenth. Also available on August 14th is Fort Tilden, which is uh, has been called a Romeo and Michelle for kind of quarter-age crisis Brooklynites. Or I would say it's a movie for anyone who feels that the show Girls is not mean enough. Uh, it is a movie about two girls, played by Bridie Elliott, who's the daughter of Chris Elliott, and Claire McNulty, who are roommates with no jobs in particular or responsibilities an income in particular, other than what seems to come from their parents. Uh, they are living together in Williamsburg and they meet these two cute boys at a rooftop party one night who say they're going to the beach the next day. And the girls decide that this is a, this is a good idea. They're going to join them. And they basically spend a disastrous day trying to get to the beach, Fort Tilden, which is way like down at the other end of Brooklyn or pass through Brooklyn. Um, and uh, this is a movie that won the prize at South by Southwest last year, was very divisive in part because it is a movie about shrill Brooklyn hipsters, but is also a satire of hipsterdom, of being kind of a coddled 20-something and being forced outside of your bubble. And uh, it's it's one that I think very, for good reason, a lot of people, other people have liked. Um, and I enjoyed it a lot. So that is Fort Tilden, and that's available on August 14th. 
And available on August 7th is a movie I haven't seen yet, but I'm very curious about. It is Dark Places, which is written and directed by Gilles Paquet-Brenner, or Brené, but more interestingly, based on the novel by Gillian Flynn, Mm. who wrote Gone Girl. Right. So this this one stars Charlize Theron, Christina Hendricks, Nicholas Holt, and Chloe Moretz. Uh, I've read this book, and it is like... It is even more dark and grim than Gone Girl is. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I'm very curious to see how it works out. But basically it is about uh, Charlize Theron plays a girl named Libby who is uh, whose family was murdered when she was a child in in Kansas where they live. And she grew up testified. She grew up testified against her teenage brother. Um, saying that he was the one at fault for this. But then in adulthood, she gets contacted by basically uh, the kind of like murder hobbyists, like, you know, self-appointed uh, investigators and obsessives uh, who basically start paying her for information about the case. And she begun, beca- begins to like investigate this murder and wonder if her memories as a child were entirely accurate. So uh, another light comedy from Gillian Flynn uh, and one I'm really curious about uh, an adaptation I'd like to see. So that's Dark Places and it is available on August 7th. Silver, silver, silver necklace, beautiful silver for your beautiful senoritas. Cuantos? 40, senorita. No, no, we, we can't afford it. We just bought these clothes. And... <laughs> what? Give me the money. No, it's like six meals. I'm good for it. Really? Yeah. Shake your pockets, homie. You are okay, Broke. So come on, let's go. Vamos. Wait, what are you doing? Gracias, señorita. No, está bien, gracias, señor. Are you for real? This is worth way more than the earrings. This is a merit badge. You have to earn these. For throwing me the middle finger the night we first met. For saying I love you and meaning it, even if it was just for a second. For not caring about the fame. And for standing here with me in this moment. So we don't have a listener's choice review this week because we're recording this a few days early uh, because of some travel that I'll be doing. So instead, technically, this is a wife's choice review. I was talking with my wife a few days ago right after I had seen the documentary Amy, which is about the late singer Amy Winehouse. It's a really powerful and intense documentary uh, and, and we were talking about it, and she said, well, why don't you do that on the podcast? Because we hadn't figured out what we were going to talk about on this episode. And she said you could do Amy, and you could do that with Beyond the Lights, which was this romance she had just watched and like, liked a lot, and which is also about the perils of the music industry. So they would make a good pairing. The only problem is that Amy is not available online right now. You have to go see it in a movie theater. And I encourage you to see it in a movie theater. It's really good. It's 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 a really well-made film. But we'll have to table that part of the discussion for a later date. But I've been looking for an excuse to see Beyond the Lights. Allison was game to discuss it. You know, the music industry seemed like a good idea for a theme. So here we are, Beyond the Lights. 
It's the latest film from Gina Prince-Bythewood, the writer and director of Love and Basketball. And Gugu Mbada Ross stars as Noni Jean, a British pop star, sort of in the Rihanna mold, best known for singing the hooks and dancing very suggestively in the songs of this popular hip-hop artist named Kid Culprit. Egged on by her incredibly controlling stage mom, played by Minnie Driver, she's a rising star in the music world, but she's not particularly happy about it. In fact, as the movie begins, she seems to be contemplating suicide following a performance when she is saved by her security guard, an LAPD officer named Kaz, who's played by Nate Parker. And an unlikely romance between the cop and the singer develops, despite the objections of Minnie Driver's Macy and Kaz's own controlling father, who's played by Danny Glover, and who envisions a political future for his son that could be hurt by a relationship with a popular tabloid target. So... There are some modern twists here, but Beyond the Lights is definitely in the, I would say, in the vein of an old-fashioned Hollywood romance. It reminded me, actually, of Notting Hill, if Notting Hill was basically set in the world of music instead of film. Uh, But the movie has gotten a lot of praise. It's gotten a lot of very positive reviews, some endorsements from famous filmmakers. I remember seeing Ryan Johnson talking about it repeatedly on Twitter, encouraging his his followers to seek it out, this little sort of criminally underseen movie uh, on numerous occasions tweeting about it. So my question to you, Allison, is this. Did you find Beyond the Lights sort of you know, special or singular? It, it, did you think it was worthy of sort of that sort of praise or – did you find it kind of a well-made version of a formulaic Hollywood film or did you not like it at all? I like this movie a lot. And I think that I don't, I, it's interesting. I I wouldn't compare it to Notting Hill. I felt like there was something that was a little more lush about it. it. I didn't, I mean, it's certainly in terms of its story and in terms of the type of romance it tries to do, it doesn't do anything that I would say you would describe as like edgy or kind of narratively daring, Mm -hmm. but I think it has a very old fashioned lushness to it that, uh, and the way that it recasts this old fashioned story in this very modern setting and with kind of very, I think like more kind of contemporary camera work and kind of framing. I I think it leads to a really like basically what feels like a reclamation of this old fashioned Hollywood romance in this very contemporary setting. And I, I, that that worked for me really well. Uh, I I think that it, it is a melodrama and I think it is very kind of unrepentantly a melodrama. Mm -hmm. And I like the way it kind of keeps one foot in a very, in a like, I think pretty realistic world of, uh, of kind of like R and B slash hip hop plus pop music. Right. Um, and then the, uh, the other foot in this like kind of proudly figurative, like all of this imagery in it, including just like all of the wardrobe that Noni wears, it's all like, uh, like chains or it's like uh, collars around the neck, you not know, super subtle. It's not subtle at all. No. And I think there's something like kind of wonderful about that, that it, it just like, it leans into that so unabashedly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that the scenes between the two of them really are, have this kind of lavishness, this kind of old, old school lavishness to them, particularly one in which they, um, Noni takes Kaz on his first airplane ride and it's uh with Beyonce playing it's it's like 
again, like filled with all of these very contemporary signifiers. And yet it also feels like very, uh, very swooningly romantic. And I, I thought that combination was pretty great. But how about you, Matt? Did you find this as worthy of praise as everyone else seemed to? No, I liked it. I don't know if I would put it quite up on that level of being a, like, sort of a, you know, a uh, unappreciated masterpiece. I, I did think that it was you know, pretty much just a, a well-made um, melodrama with, I agree, some very nice sort of observational touches about the, the sort of, it seems an we are not experts in this world, but the world of sort of the, the modern celebrity culture and, and hip hop and these, and the awards shows and the uh, tabloids and the entertainment journalists they're talking to all of that stuff, all the little details about that. It seemed to me to be getting really right, or at least it felt right to someone who is not an expert. So I liked all of that stuff quite a bit as well. I mean, the, the, the Notting Hill thing, what I was talking about was basically just the idea that it's this, you know, incredibly famous woman who is not too happy with the sort of trappings of fame and feeling like she's kind of trapped within them, who falls for this quote unquote ordinary guy who is also incredibly handsome and charming. And, and they have a, you know, they sort of, they're trying to navigate this world and fall in love while the sort of apparatus of fame is kind of working against them. So I, I, that's where I was sort of seeing the comparison. Um, There are definitely some different, twists to it i mean the other the thing that i i felt was pretty singular or unique about this movie is there is anything is gugu mbada Ra, who i think is really fantastic in this movie i think the character is pretty well written actually as well i thought that nate parker as kaz i thought he was fine and i thought the i thought maybe if the character was a little more richly written maybe he could have given an even better performance but it did feel to me a little the movie was sort of slanted in her direction in terms of she gets all the showiest Absolutely. parts and, you know. It, but he's he's come to rescue her. Sure. It's not really sure. his story. That's true. That's true. I, I just felt like she really shines in this movie. And uh, I'm not necessarily, uh, in, you know, p- trying to downplay what Nate Parker does. I just feel like she's the real star here. It's not it's not an equal uh, you might call it a two-hander. It is really, it's all about her to me. Yeah, agreed. And I think that, I, I mean, part of the film is really about her freeing herself, you know, that he he provides support that she's not getting anywhere else and kind of right. in this like pivotal moment, right, says, I see you. But that a lot of the journey that's being made, I mean, it's not really him changing. It's her you know, kind of figuring out how to kind of seize control back of her career. And certainly it's, you know, it's interesting that you brought up Amy. I didn't think about this movie when watching Amy, but there are, there's a part in Amy where like Amy Winehouse has like clearly tried to kind of like things that she is not okay. Yeah. She has kind of like tried to put the brakes on things. And like, there's a part where, it's described as like someone picks her up from where she's asleep on the couch or something and puts her, puts on, her a on a plane to her next, to gig. her next yeah. show. And she like wakes up in, um, I can't remember where Belgrade, was Belgrade. Yeah. And like, and has to perform mm-hmm. and that's a disastrous show. Yeah. And you th- to think about the ways in which there's like this mechanism in place that in which you are almost the least important part, like you yeah. are the central part of it. But also your participation is almost like, you know, it moves whether you want it to move or not. Right. Uh, and I think that the movie does a pretty good job of portraying that and of portray and of uh, letting Mbatara like show 
how trapped you can genuinely feel in that. And something that's like difficult to make sound like a sob story from the outside. Yes, I agree. That's how so often what you hear, you know, oh, it's so hard to be rich and famous and people complaining about the tabloids. That's very easy to just go, oh, well, you know, that's what you signed up for. Exactly. And here it really she really does make it seem like a like this personal tragedy that this beautiful, talented woman is kind of being snuffed out. And it really does make a great and terrifying double feature with Amy because that's a real life version with a tragic ending, but that really has a very similar feel right down to the controlling uh, parents Parents, who, you know, to some extent they love their, their daughter and they, you know, they want what's best for her, but they also, whether it's delusion or greed or whatever you want to attribute it to are sort of so blinded to the truth of their, their child's feelings that they just can't, see it or refuse to see it and they keep pushing forward uh potentially to dangerous or fatal endings which is you know kind of the the horror part of the whole thing right i do i think there is something really noteworthy about the way that this movie is grounded in also in blackness basically Mm -hmm. you know like the the movie starts off with this scene and it's the second movie of gugu Mbataraz that has done this which is a scene in which her like white parent or white caretaker like has not been able to figure out what to do with her hair. Um, This is also true in Belle, the period drama. Right. Which which I haven't seen. Um, And it, you know, the first scene in this with her um, played by a child actress uh, as a, as a little girl has mini driver, like frantically bringing her to a hairdresser to be like, I don't know how to do this. And it's just the two of us. Right. And I think that, like later in this film it has a uh, it, it has a scene that's like almost a kind of reverse of a scene that's like a really common one for like when a woman is having a breakdown right in a movie it like turns to the, like cuts hair off crying in the mirror in a bathroom <laughs> right, right. and she has a scene in which she cuts out her hair extensions and lets like her natural curls through and it's this scene of like kind of like like shedding armor almost. Right. And I think that there's something really It's like a like the caterpillar into the butterfly almost. Right. And that just like in in this way of being like letting your actual self shine through. Right. And you know there are ways in which a lot of the the kind of way the, the fact that she feels trapped are kind of having to do with being a woman and being objectified in the music industry, but also it has to do with kind of fitting into a particular image of like acceptable image, right. For being a black woman, who's a singer yes. and kind of the hair, the outfits, the nails, absolutely. And the relationship, the relationship she's in before this with kid culprit, with kid culprit, yes. uh, who's played by machine gun Kelly, who's an actual rapper, like the ways in which that's portrayed as like, half real and half arranged by the label yeah you know that like there it speaks to this particular kind of like uh basically to molding yourself into this image the packaging of like you said the packaging of black women i agree i think that's a huge part of the movie and one of the more interesting parts where it's you know where she's introduced as you said as a child with you know with the mini driver character trying what do i do with her hair and then the next time we see her as a as an adult she's got this gorgeous very fake purple weave and it's like you you can see that there is there's been sort of this this molding has taken place that 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 it's so artificial and that's what it is it's this artifice that has to kind of be stripped away over the course of the film right and the first time we see her like after that childhood scene is like this very pitch perfect rendition of a music video that's like 
it's very, incredible it's actually so well done, yeah. i you know we should give it i don't know if that it's was on youtube as well if you want to look that up you know i don't know if that's something that gina prince bythewood shot herself whether they brought in a music director to do that but whoever made that music video got it 100 percent right and and credit too to gugu and batha raw who really I think really you can, can you can believe that she is a Rihanna type or whatever yeah. you know this character is supposed to be. She really convinces you that she could have a career as a as a woman in the music industry doing those sorts of of parts. She is really good, and uh, yeah, it just makes it that much more convincing when she undergoes this transformation. I think when I was talking earlier about Nate Parker and his character, it just seems like. They're sort of they, they they're trying to make build up his character and maybe it was a studio note at some point we need to make his character a little bit more uh, in you know in depth or something but the fact all the stuff with his dad and with his uh, with you know and obviously the father is his controlling of him in the same way that Minnie Driver is controlling of her and that sort of gives them a commonality something a connection that they can draw but I just thought a lot of that stuff was kind of a non-starter and and I, I, I it seemed to me there was the wrong amount either they should have taken it all out or built that even further up yeah I agree I think it it does it sets up a little of that commonality and i think there is potential for something very interesting there in that the role that he's trying to fit into is basically like the perfect young black you know like future politician future right. president right like yeah. is basically the path that he is being guided down um including like dinners with like the heads of the churches and other community leaders from la I, and there's not enough there to really build that storyline up and right. to make it a parallel. Though I do, I, I think the idea of her as being kind of this toxic commodity in his life is an interesting one that I sure. wish they had explored more. Yeah. But yeah, he's, I mean, he is like, he's a prince, right? Like he is, right. he is a handsome gentleman who, uh, who like, who's solid, right? He is so solid. He is someone who can take care of her and like, well, who treats her right. And I think, there's an aspect of the film that just needs him to be this slightly fantasy figure. Mm -hmm. And that I think that's where that kind of feeling of lack comes in. Right. Is that he has a bit of backstory, but it's not enough to make him a whole person. Right. But he's not quite fantasy either. I would just say the one other issue there is that, you know, as we've said, the music industry side of things, the movie seems to really be very perceptive about, get really right, seems to seems to be taking place in these real places, and they've just sort of inserted Gugu Mbada Raw into them, and she fits in. She just feels like she belongs in this world. You know, it almost feels like almost like documentary-ish. Whereas those scenes, and there's a fair amount of them, of the back backroom dealings and the uh, the political machinations, they don't feel particularly insightful to me or you know like they have some sort of knowledge of this world particularly they don't really feel like they're imparting anything to me whereas the scenes of the the hip-hop world i really felt like i was seeing something interesting and 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 in ways that don't even necessarily call attention to themselves that much you know things like there's a there's scenes where she's like in photo shoots and there'll be a shot where we'll we'll see them sort of like padding out her bra almost. They don't call attention to it. They don't make a big deal out of it. But you you it's it's there in the shot. And then later after her make under, you sort of notice that her sort of voluptuousness has gone away a little bit. And that again, it's just like little details like that that I think make the movie very feel very insightful in the music industry. And I just don't think it, the same could be said of the sort of the Los Angeles political scene in the same way. Agreed. It's definitely that part is underwritten. Right. Um, but yeah, I agree. Like in terms of like also how she's treated, 
like there are many scenes in which she is just there and people are fixing her like yeah. so many scenes in which you're almost like a doll right mm. like right like people like pulling up her top and like fluffing her hair like a whole entourage of people just to make her look good and again something that i think to a lot of people sounds like a fantasy and it really makes that seem kind of nightmarish and 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 like a trap that you can't escape from which is another way that this movie is a lot like amy as well which yeah. we don't want to talk about too much but no um but yeah i i did i like this one a lot and i do think it is the kind of uh gugu mbatara has had like two really star making roles last year and i i really hope that they translate into something because she's both like just very good she's very good in the role she's really exceptionally beautiful and also and just is also like very movie star like and i think that's part of the reason that this movie works so well for me is that it has that like the ways in which like old movie stars could seem larger than life and were mm. allowed to. Yeah. I think she carries that in this movie very well. I completely agree. You know, if I, like I said, if there's one thing that I feel like is really exceptional about this movie, it is her. And I, you just, she has it, you know, I mean, that's part, again, she is very convincing in this part. And part of what makes her convincing is the fact that she has this sort of aura about her that she seems like a superstar, even though in real life, she's not quite there yet, but she, you feel like she should be almost because she is, you know, glamorous and also a fabulous actress. And, and I think, I think that uh, it would be a shame if in five years she is not, I don't want her to become Noni Jean, but it'd be nice if she became sort of a, a superstar of the world of film that was sort of somewhat equivalent in terms of stature. I would, I would, I'm really looking forward to seeing more, more of her on screen. She's, she is a talent. I think that's the big takeaway here. And I do encourage people to see this movie. I think it is a, you know, it is a sort of underseen and, and is a very solid, satisfying melodrama. It does exactly what you kind of want it to do. It's worth checking out. It's on Netflix. Now it is worth seeing that's beyond the lights. alphabetize my gaffers tape here the subject of this episode is going to be the music industry on screen the music business allison do you have anything you want to say in a general sense uh, first of all well just i think that when you think about movies about the music business they're usually from the point of view of the performers so a lot of them are about you know how exploitative or awful or seedy like the whole arm of the industry is but I was kind of interested in that. I, I was trying to pick some movies when I did that were not just about that. Um, 
uh, and I think there are certainly a lot out there. There, are they, especially more on the documentary side mm-hmm. that you ha- you can seek out ones like the Wrecking Crew documentary about like studio musicians who played on these great tracks but never became famous, or Muscle Shoals, uh, you know, another documentary. Or even, I, it's not a documentary, but I kind of, I was interested in the treatment of the music industry in Get On Up, a James Brown biopic, that is one of the few biopics I can think of in which the the subject actually gives a lot of thought to the business of the music industry, uh, as well as performing, mm-hmm. you know? it's I think it's easier, movies are very attracted, understandably, to the creative side and to wild genius and performance and charisma but there's a lot to be there's a lot to explore on the business side i mean i think there's a reason that empire the tv show made such a splash yes and it's because there's like a fascinating kind of behind the scenes to the business of like wrestling money out of out of music something Mm -hmm. that kind of uh, you know is a a, such a a fundamentally ephemeral joy Mm. Well, what about you, Matt? Any thoughts on music industry? I think I think I've got mine sort of embedded in my picks, so maybe we can just get to those and we can All sort right. of roll from there. You want me to go first? Yeah, why don't you go first? All right, my first pick is called Jimmy Colon. All is by my side. It was actually a listener's choice option, I think, a few weeks ago, and it didn't win. And I was like, nuts to that! I'm going to watch it right now because it fits very nicely with this topic, and it it made a nice sort of back to back viewing with Beyond the Lights. Uh, there's one thing, definitely, though, that holds this movie back, I will say, and that is that it has no Jimi Hendrix music in it, <laughs> which is sort of a problem. It is a Jimi Hendrix biopic with no Jimi Hendrix music. The uh, The movie was not authorized by the Hendrix estate, so the writer-director John Ridley, who's also the Oscar-winning writer of 12 Years a Slave, was not allowed to use any Jimi Hendrix music in this movie. And unquestionably, it hurts the movie, without a doubt. They can sort of approximate his sound with new recordings. They have a sort of sound-alike guitarist who recorded some Hendrix-esque uh, performing, and there are some new versions of sound-alike Hendrix with, like, covers. They could do, like, so, you know, like, Jimi Hendrix famously did Wild Thing, so there's, like, a version of Wild Thing. Um, he covered Sgt. Pepper's Only Hearts Club Band by the Beatles, so there's a, a version of that. But really, like, a Hendrix movie without Purple Haze, is, is like, it's like a George Washington movie where he doesn't cut down the cherry tree. Like, it's there's something intrinsically missing there. But given that obvious and significant limitation, I think it's a pretty good movie and actually a, an interesting portrait of the music industry in the 1960s. Uh, Jimi Hendrix is played by Andre Benjamin from Outcast, who I thought gave a very good performance, maybe the best thing I've seen him do on screen to date. He plays Jimmy as this kind of aimless, very friendly, genial, soft-spoken guitarist with a little bit of a dark side that comes out from time to time. And he's sort of kind of wandering, playing backup for this other band when he's discovered by Linda Keith, who is at the time the girlfriend of the Rolling Stones' Keith Richards, and she is played in the film by... Allison's favorite named actress on the entire planet, Imogene Poots. I know you're a big fan of her. At uh, least. Like Honeysuckle Weeks as well. <laughs> okay, well. Tuppence Middleton. 1A, 1B, and 1C. She's in the group, Imogene Poots. Uh, and in the film, she's the one who's really credited with making Jimi Hendrix a star. She finds him, believes he's talented, 
and introduces him to all these people in the music industry that she knows until she finds someone who will take him on as a client. And I think that's what's interesting about All Is By My Side from this music business perspective. This notion that Jimi Hendrix, who is maybe the most talented guitar player who ever lived, I mean, I don't think it's out of the question to say something like that. I mean, maybe you could make an argument for other people, but he's certainly in the conversation for the best guitarist ever. And he was toiling away in obscurity until he found someone with enough connections to jumpstart his career. And even then, it wasn't easy for him. That it, We see in the film, he had to evolve as a performer. He had to sort of beef up his performance on, uh, on the stage. He had to get over his fear or at least his dislike of singing. He didn't really like to sing his own songs. He just kind of wanted to play on the guitar. And, and if you're going to front your own band, you got to be able to sing too. So the movie really shows how... I think similar to Beyond the Lights, where we see that Noni character wants to express herself, but that's not like it's really less about that as it is about the package, right? How marketing. do you marketing? How do you package yourself? How do you sell yourself? Even if you have a talent, which these characters and these real people undeniably do, that is not enough. And I think that is pretty fascinating, actually. And as a biopic, I think this is a pretty good one too. It does not do the typical. All, you know, walk the line, Ray thing, where it's just the whole story from birth to death. And instead, it's just about this one year in Jimi Hendrix's life, basically from when he's discovered by Linda Keith to when he plays the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967 and becomes a huge international star. And I think it was a great choice because it kind of gives us the big biopic in a microcosm. It gives us a lot of the things we expect to see from a biopic with a much more kind of traditional and satisfying narrative. You know, like we get to see him struggle. We get to see him have moments of doubt. We get to see him have sort of, you know, these transcendent solos and genius moments. But it's just a very compact and movie-friendly kind of timeline to do that all with. Uh, it has some nice impressionistic flourishes, too. I think John Ridley was very attentive to the way he uses sound because Jimi Hendrix talks even in the movie the character does about how he kind of feels and sees music and I think the movie kind of gets that and does some interesting stuff with that. Has some nice use of old old uh, photos and videos as well. It, it just doesn't look like every other biopic, which I appreciated. So I've read some stuff online that some of like Jimi Hendrix's real-life friends, associates, they, they sort of take issue with some of the, the details, the truthfulness of some things, uh, particularly in the treatment of his girlfriend in the movie played by Haley Atwell from Agent Carter. But I think it's a pretty solid movie, and sort of like Beyond the Lights is another one that just kind of came and went, did not get a, a big audience, did not really find acceptance in the mainstream. But I, I, it's worth seeing, and I, I think that it uh, it's worth checking out now on Netflix. I don't – maybe All Is By My Side is a, a terrible title. I kind of feel that way. It's terrible, yes. Uh, I think maybe Jimmy, J-I-M-I, just his name might have been stronger. So, But Jimmy colon All Is By My Side, which is it's sort of treated both ways I've seen – they're both not very good titles, but <laughs> ignore the title. Ignore the fact that it doesn't have any of the Hendrix music in it. And I think you're going to enjoy it. It's a pretty solid little biopic. Jimmy All Is By My Side on uh, Netflix right now. All right. Well, my first pick actually, uh, I think, dovetails a bit with what you brought up about the the kind packaging, of line, the marketing. packaging and also and musical talent. And how they don't always, they like one does not always come with the other. Mm -hmm. It's very possible to be a great musician or a great talent and to not make it because yes. there's no place for you or you're not, you're not, 
you don't fit the right image. Right. Um, and it is a documentary. It is 20 feet from stardom, uh, now streaming on Netflix, uh, directed by Morgan Neville. Uh, you know, this film won the best documentary Oscar last year over the act of killing, most notably, but also Dirty Wars and The Square and Cutie and the Boxer. All films that I think were more beloved in the kind of critical community and i think that this film got a little maligned because of that because it is a more kind of pop pop documentary it's a little it's certainly less formally ambitious uh maybe like you know it's, it's a more straightforward it's a talking head movie but I, it doesn't mean that it isn't a good doc in its own right you know in in its own aims even if it is mm. a bit more of a conventional one and i think particularly it's it, it it is interesting in the ways in which it well first of all tells this alternative history of music through backup singers uh most of them black women most of them coming from a background of singing in churches a lot of preachers daughters there's like a, a bit where it's all cut together and uh, most of the subjects talk about being preachers daughters mm. um but who have contributed to and also f like filled out these famous songs uh, and who are essentially the bit players of the music industry, but also as is kind of repeated throughout the movie are also like maybe more, more and just on a sheer talent level, you know, and a sheer kind of technical level, more talented than a lot of people who go on to be stars. Right. And I think the movie comes at that idea from two angles, it certainly raises a lot of, of good points about race and talent and looks and how all of these things and image in general and, you know, how all of these things uh, are part of who gets to be famous and who's chosen to be famous. Um, but I think that it maybe more pointedly brings up the idea that Sometimes the, the things that go into being a good backup singer, which is the ability to sing different types of music, the ability to harmonize, the ability to figure out what part of the song you can fit into that will make it better as a whole, in, in many ways go against the kind of ego and the demand for the spotlight that lead to someone being a star. They say multiple times, you need the ego to do this. It, you know, it's it's not a star-like thing to sing backup for someone else. It's not a star-like thing to provide support, ultimately. And, uh, I, you know, there are kind of two, I, I think, two of the stories that most resonate throughout it, of the different people who are profiled in this. On one, you have Darlene Love, you know, the great Darlene Love, who was kind of famously denied credit on some very well-known Phil Spector records that she sang lead on who were then released under other people's names and who has like now kind of gotten the fame that she's always kind of deserved uh, later in her life. And then you have Lisa Fisher, who is someone who won a Grammy, but who kept kind of like finding herself going back into doing things like going on tour with the Rolling Stones, no small task, you know, certainly singing, you know, singing a duet with Mick Jagger, but still like basically putting yourself on other people's records, like right. putting yourself in other people's acts and who ultimately, you know, fades out of stardom again and is back to being a backup singer. Um, and, and you really see the ways in which sometimes like being a talented chameleon, 
means and it means that you you don't get the spotlight right you know that because like there's if there's not one thing that people think of you for that you've established established yourself as good at sometimes better to be distinctive exactly. than be the best than be the best yeah uh and then, and this is a movie that's also got a lot of like great uh, a lot of great bits of music um to play I, there's one part in particular where uh darlene love is uh and the blossoms which are her old session group are reunited for the first time in years and they break into dadu run run and like they no no they haven't rehearsed this is the first time they've sung together in like three decades and it's like perfect and it's just like i just a goosebump moment but i think also it's a movie this is a movie that really explores the idea of when you say i just want to sing like, do you really mean that? Right. Because maybe that's all you're going to get to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think it, it explores that question really well. Uh, 20 Feet from Stardom, now streaming on Netflix. Okay. My next pick will probably be, I'm guessing, a little controversial with some listeners, as it's been a very controversial movie with just about everyone who's seen it since 2010. It is called I'm Still Here, the... Uh, mockumentary, perhaps the rockumentary by Casey Affleck about actor Joaquin Phoenix and his quest to quit acting and become a uh, a hip hop star. And the twist to the whole thing was that Affleck and Phoenix made this movie and as its story was playing out on television, on actual talk shows, on David Letterman, on red carpets at at you know big events, they made no attempt to clarify that that Joaquin Phoenix was just playing around, was just acting like he was going through a meltdown. So imagine, if you haven't seen the film, imagine if Spinal Tap actually toured, actually sold tickets to their gigs, actually screwed up those gigs, actually pissed off their fans, and made that into a movie. And you you get some idea of what I'm Still Here is about. Um, when the movie first came out, I, I, people, some people were very turned off by it, just on basic premise, thought that Casey Affleck, Joaquin Phoenix, were basically just giving a big middle finger to the audience, to the sort of media apparatus that they're sort of chronicling in this, and to, I guess, to just um, the sort of overall world of stardom and celebrity. And I know personally, I still, as much as I like this movie, I still have not fully forgiven Joaquin Phoenix for doing this. <laughs> do you know what I'm going to say here? No. For doing this in the middle of the press tour for Two Lovers, which is yeah. a movie that I adore. It's a magnificent it's a film. great movie. Yeah, and I, I, I don't necessarily think that the movie would have done that much better if he had just done this uh, uh, some other time. If he had behaved like a normal human being during the press tour for Two Lovers. But the fact of the matter is, he did it during the press tour for Two Lovers, and that sort of hijacked the entire conversation about that movie. And no one wants to see him, I guess, in a sort of austere, sad uh, melodrama while he's sort of losing his mind on TV. It's just, it just, you know, sort of, they don't go together. So that's always kind of stuck in my craw. But that said... I do think there is something interesting about this movie and what it has to say about, and again, this is sort of an echo of Beyond the Lights and definitely of Amy as well, the sort of uh, the American fascination with a train wreck and how people would rather watch someone kind of spin out of control and perhaps make jokes from the sidelines than they would say, this person needs help, I'm going to try to help them get it, or at least not participate 
uh, not observe with uh, with amusement their sort of self destruction. And it is also in my eyes, I think it still has never gotten enough credit for having one of the craziest and and best performances I've ever seen. I mean, it's one thing to do what he does, what Joaquin Phoenix does in this movie in a film like Spinal Tap, where you're 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 playing a character, but you're doing it within a, you know, it's in a fictional construct. They didn't actually do performances, you know, they didn't sell tickets and have concerts. Joaquin Phoenix actually did, you know, attempt to have concerts as a terrible, terrible hip-hop artist. He really did go on David Letterman and do these things. You know, a lot of actors get credit for, oh, they put on weight for a part, but nobody knew that he was doing this for a part, and he basically risked his entire career to do this. Like, if I was a filmmaker that was in a position to hire him. I don't even know if I would hire him now, even after he's now gone on to make great films again, like the master, like I, like, I just don't know if I would risk it like that. And that people still keep hiring him, you know, kind of blows my mind But anyway, but I, I don't begrudge anyone who doesn't like this movie or doesn't find it funny. I actually think at times it is really funny, but I just, I think that some of the mixed reaction of the movie is, is partly because the people who were watching it were sort of the butt of the joke, you know, like film critics, people who showed up to like the press junket of two lovers and asked him dumb questions. And he responded as this bizarre sort of meltdown guy. Uh, so I think as time goes on and we get further from that part of things, people may start to come around to this movie. It's the kind of movie that in 10, 20 years, people are going to be like, how does this exist? It's fascinating and amazing. And, but I can see why at the time it was, it was less well-received, but I've always thought as a portrait of of a, a the, the the sort of the dark fringes of celebrity in the music industry, it is it is pretty unprecedented and unique and worth seeing. So that's I'm still here. You can if you have Amazon Prime, you can watch it for free on Amazon Prime. You can also rent it as well. I think I I like managed to just block block everything out about of, like, it. All of that. So that I can enjoy Joaquin Phoenix performances again. I mean, I get that. I get yeah. that. Because I think he is maybe the best actor working today. I don't disagree. And it was so annoying at the time when he was doing that. It was so annoying. All right. Well, my next pick is uh, is a film about someone who is maybe inherently annoying, but in a very endearing way. Uh, and when I talk about, you don't get a lot of movies about the business people in in uh, in the music industry. Mm-hmm. This is one of the rare ones that is about that, and is specifically about being the business guy in the music industry. It is Twenty Four Hour Party People, which is available for rent from many different places, and is directed by Michael Winterbottom, who has worked very well with Steve Coogan on multiple movies. Uh, this is his two thousand two film in which Coogan plays Tony Wilson a Granada television reporter and the founder of Factory Records uh, in Manchester in the kind of 70s and 80s into the 90s when there's a whole big music scene there that he tries to he, he, he tries to make a business out of, but is more interested in basically becoming a key member on the scene of, which is where the great conflict of his life comes in. And, it, you know, one of the things that is so enjoyable about this movie, and I think it's, it's maybe my favorite Steve Coogan performance, or certainly my favorite Steve Coogan performance when he's playing not himself, <laughs> not a variation on himself. Right, right. Uh, which is, you know, Tony Wilson, uh, as Tony Wilson, Steve Coogan is like part of the movie, but also constantly breaking the fourth wall to narrate things. And also sometimes to try and dictate the, th- like the thematic imagery of the movie from the very first scene in which 
it, which is like a real reenactment of uh, of Tony Wilson doing this bit for Granada Television in which he um, hand glides despite not knowing what he's doing and despite like ending up like crashing into a barbed wire fence. And then he comes out and tries to be like, tries to say this is an imagery about Icarus, you know, and it both is and it is both like uh, an example of what Wilson is trying to do, which is to recast all of this chaos into as history. It is a movie that's sort of, it's the movie equivalent of an oral history filled with anecdotes, filled with kind of different little bits in which people go off, you know, you'll see like someone who will go off to do something significant later, but maybe never see their story. Mm. Um, you know, there's a scene in which, uh, Tony Wilson and his wife are at the f- first Sex Pistols gig in Manchester, and there are only forty-two people there. And he goes through the room and describes who's there and who they'll they'll go off, what who they'll go off to be, and it really kind of uh, creates this sense of 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 kind of order in what is obviously this like crazy scene that is happening. Um, and I think what's very endearing about about the character of Tony Wilson as portrayed in this movie is that he's like, he's so uncool. It is fundamentally uncool to be the industry guy and not in the band. And uh, Tony Wilson knows this and yet is trying to figure out a way to be part of the scene, to cement his place in history. He's always concerned about his place in history and he's such a prat and also, and so like, uh, and off, so often ridiculed and his willingness to have that happen in order to be the guy, you know, in order to be the guy on the scene is very lovable. I think throughout there, there's a scene er, like in the middle of the movie where he signs Joy Division and it, he does it by convinc- by first by convincing, coming up with this deal in which there's no one's bound contractually obligated, right? It's like a 50, 50 split, but also he signs his name in blood in this dirty pub just to prove that he's going to be do right by them. Uh, and I, you know, I, I think that that spirit, the kind of that, like the drama of that, but also the kind of fundamental silliness of it is, is encapsulated in this character. Um, and I think also it, it, it's, it is like a very fun uh, story of this time and this great music scene and uh, one with some great performances. I particularly call out Sean Harris, who plays Ian Curtis, um, and who's also soon to be seen as the bad guy in the new Mission Impossible movie, but who is like playing this much smaller, you know, this much smaller role than say Control, which came out a few years later and is a movie specifically about Ian Curtis, but that recasts like this tragic character as part of this larger scene. So when his suicide comes, it it comes out of nowhere and everyone's kind of like floored by it. Uh, And I think that those two movies together uh, make for a very interesting double feature because one is kind of the outside perspective and one is, is the, the inside one. But it's a very funny movie, a very profane movie, and and one about trying to earn your place in history when you're not the guy who makes anything. You're just the guy who who gets the other guys who make things to come play in the shows, as difficult as they can be. And I, it's a movie that still holds up very well. Um, 24-hour party people, available for rent everywhere. All right, let's let's talk about some uh, some new movies, or at least one new movie that's new in theaters right now. This is Singer and Wilmore's completely concise and totally succinct new release roundup. Did I get the Did I get the name right, Allison? <laughs> 
just staring at me with such disdain. Let's talk about next week's uh, big release, which we have both already seen, and that is Mission Colon Impossible Dash Rogue Nation. <laughs> I believe that's how it's pronounced. I could be wrong. This is the fifth Mission Impossible movie. This this franchise has been going on for 20 years now. Just think Who about that. Who would have thought? I, I certainly would not, not have. Not the first one, right? Which was totally fine. It was fine. But like, it was not like, no. I don't think anyone was like, by God, this, this is a signature franchise. Yes. That should go, right. That should outlive the TV show it's based on by 10 years. <laughs> no, no one would have predicted it. Or that if it was still around by now, that Tom Cruise would still be the guy running around in these things. And frankly, that they would be getting better yeah i mean i don't i mean i don't think this one is as good as the, the last, last one, one but they certainly have i would say they've maintained a certain level of quality and i would say all of the last three were better than either of the first two i would agree yeah uh, i one thing i did find really kind of funny getting back to tom cruise and the fact that he is still making these movies is that Alec Baldwin, I was realizing, could have played that character, the Ethan Hunt character. When the yes. first movie came out, Alec Baldwin was an action star. That's right. He had made The Getaway. He had made The Shadow he right before like, this. Uh, yeah, he was, he was mean and mean and handsome. He was and- Jack Ryan. He was yeah. the original Jack Ryan in Hunt for Red October. So now, obviously, he was never as big a movie star as Tom Cruise, but he certainly was someone you could have seen in this part. And now he basically plays his cranky old boss, <laughs> <Yeah>. essentially, whereas <laughs> Tom Cruise is still doing this. And I think that does speak to his incredible longevity and his commitment right to to being an action star which i know i enjoy i i, I, enjoy, I enjoyed this movie it I seems like you like it a too. lot yes i think its plot makes maybe even less sense in terms of like in terms of just like the kind of chasing the macguffin aspect of it which I is always feel like my, i feel like i understood it basically I didn't, like I, I didn't feel like i didn't understand it but certainly yeah. there was one point where jordan hoffman our colleague sure leaned over and was like what are they stealing again and i was like <laughs> i don't you... know if i can actually tell you okay you know uh, which is fine actually i yeah, i've certainly never looked to these movies i mean these movies I, I think are built around set pieces action set pieces and then kind of almost like written back from them probably and the action set pieces in this are very good they're awesome they're like the motorcycle chase is amazing terrific yeah yeah there's a whole scene in which they steal something it's also very good right it's in an underwater computer which it's, i have no idea if that exists but it is hilarious it that, is. It, that 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 it, it does exist at least in this movie and that's an amazing sequence too oh, and, and the there's opera? The, the opera, opera is, so is another good. great sequence. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny. All the posters, all the ads are all about Tom Cruise hanging off that plane, right? Which he famously really did. He, like, they strapped him to this plane and they flew the plane eight times in the air and he just hung on for dear life. Now, he was safety harnessed and all that jazz, but actually did it. And you think, well, that's going to be the big set piece in the movie. That's going to be the big climax. That is the literally the first thing that <laughs> yeah. happens in this movie. I mean, th- talk about, like, throwing down the gauntlet. It's like... This movie is so crazy and over the top and fun that we can start with the thing that you're waiting to see. And, you know, it's funny because when that happened, I was like, oh, how is the rest of this movie going to top Tom Cruise hanging off an airplane? And I don't know if it ever technically tops it, but there is enough cool, fun stuff in this movie that I didn't feel like, oh, it it, it peaked too early because there are it just it just keeps going and going and going with all of these really fun action scenes. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's also, I think, a bit funnier than the past ones have been. Like it's a bit it's it's got like goofier things happening, not like it is not. I, what I would describe as like a comedy first, but like it's it's funny. It's fun. It's like a little lighter uh, and kind of 
Yeah, and it just feels like a little freed from uh, it has maybe some some of the dramas of the last of like past installments. Yeah, well, I think the la- I mean, I think that depending on which one you're looking at, they've always had kind of little moments. It definitely has some nice comic beats, and some of that in- in- I would put in the uh, give credit to Tom Cruise, who actually yeah. at times is making fun of himself in almost like. Uh, you know, like physical comedy fashion, like kind of stumbling all over himself in very funny ways, which I thought was refreshing yes. and very charming. That part was great. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's a fun movie. I didn't think that it was quite as spectacular and sort of propulsive as the last one. I don't think it had any sequence that really measured up to the Burj Khalifa. Right, sequence. exactly. But yes, but I think it had multiple very good ones i agree i agree 100 percent. it's a fun summer movie if you yeah. haven't gotten sick of summer movies yet i know it's getting late in the summer this is one of the i think it's one of the better ones that's come out this uh, summer so mission impossible mission colon impossible dash rogue nation <laughs> uh gets uh gets the allison and matt seal of approval let's get on to behind the eight ball where we count down three new releases on streaming two listener recommendations and you guys have been sending in a ton of them lately which is fantastic yeah, so we really thank you that. and we also do one film chosen blindly by number from our my lists allison would you like to go first you want me to go first I i'll let like you choose first, all right please. well why don't you start then with three new releases that are now on streaming all right well my first new release is also a shout out to a new streaming service there are always new ones popping up, it seems, every uh, maybe a few months or so. And this one is called Shudder, S-H-U-D-D-E-R, and it is devoted exclusively to horror films, all sorts of genre, uh, horror genre films. Um, it's Colin Geddes, who is the programmer of the Toronto Film Festival's like beloved and very good Midnight Mad- Madness program, is involved in this one. Um, and it's got a lot of new and old films. And the one I will call out is Death Dream, which is the 1974 horror film from Canada's own Bob Clark, who is better known for films like Porky's and A Christmas Story. Death Dream is is both like a vampire slash zombie movie and also a kind of metaphor for PTSD. Its main character is a soldier who shot in Vietnam, but who has vowed to his mother to come back. And so he does, even though the family received a death notice, there's just something wrong with him. He only seems to really kind of come alive at night and there start to be mysterious deaths around the neighborhood. And you can guess that it does not all end happily ever after. But it's uh, a kind of great, not mainstream movie that it's really nice to see offered on a streaming site. So if you're a big horror fan, maybe you want to poke around on Shudder. I think it's Shudder.com. It, I'm looking at it right now. Shudder.com. Yeah. So this is it's a new streaming service. It's just horror movies. Just horror movies. And uh, it's a nice looking website. And I like when I scroll over the different options, like collections and browse, like they all kind of shiver like uh, someone who's <laughs> shivering in terror. That's a nice little touch. It's a good. It's a good looking website. They do have some good movies. I'm just looking here. They have the Evil Dead, the Innkeepers. So yeah, it's it's, uh, it's it looks like a, it's a, something maybe for horror fans yeah, in our audience. Fan, might be worth uh, checking know, take a out. Look. It yeah. might be something worth worth your dollars. Um, also new to streaming is Comet on Netflix, which is a movie I haven't seen yet, but I was very eager to add to my my list. It's a romantic comedy starring Emmy Rossum and Justin Long as a couple who meet in a parallel universe, and the movie kind of skips around their six-year relationship. I'm particularly interested in this movie because it is the directorial debut from Sam Esmail, 
who is also the creator of Mr. Robot, the, sh- the USA Network show that has been like very non-USA Network-like and really a good summer show and one that I've really fallen in love with. Uh, so if you are, a, you are a viewer of Mr. Robot, maybe you are curious about that too. It is called Comet and it is streaming on Netflix. And new to Amazon Prime is Escobar, Parad- Escobar colon, Paradise Lost. Oh, I think all... all- punctuation and title should be pronounced on this show (laughs) Um, from now on and it is the latest film to attempt the my week with marilyn approach to a famous person which is to see him or her through the eyes of some regular schlub and the famous person in this case uh, which is a fictional account by the way is the drug lord pablo escobar played by benicio del toro while the schlub is a canadian server played by josh josh hutcherson who falls in with escobar after falling in love with his niece okay. while in Colombia to yeah. start a surf camp. Um, and it is, uh, I, I feel like it is fundamentally a bit problematic to ask to be that um, invested in Josh Hutcherson as a kind of mild-mannered Canadian <laughs> surfer. Uh-huh. But Del Toro is so good in this. He is, I think, it's the kind of role that he just can really dig his teeth into as a character who is both like, normalizes being menacing you know is so kind of dangerous but also is being seen in this very domestic setting uh that that i think is is definitely worth a look so that is escobar paradise lost it is now streaming on amazon prime all right how about two listener recommendations all right first up we have one from lauren in eatontown new jersey who writes i've got a great recommendation for you guys i just finished watching an honest liar a documentary about magician and fervent debunker the amazing randy it is a spectacularly fascinating film Randy, in the tradition of his hero Houdini before him, started as a magician and escape artist before devoting his life to exposing psychics, faith healers, and other charlatans who duped the public for financial gain. His life is just stunning from his personal life, the revelations he has uncovered, and the lengths he will go to go to to do so his rivalries of sorts with frauds and thousands of people he has touched and continues to reach it really is just endlessly captivating it's a story about the shades of deception the truth image and perception trust and belief it's inspiring and moving i really can't recommend the film enough and hope more people check it out and enjoy it as much as i did and that is now streaming on netflix and then we have another recommendation from rob in the bay area who writes Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla from 1952 is available is available on Amazon Prime, Netflix, Hulu, YouTube, Crackle and Fandor. Uh, The ultimate uh, horror, William Bodine uh, always competes with Ed Wood for the honor of worst film director ever. (laughs) In 1952, he met an awful Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin impersonation nightclub act. So he did the obvious. He signed them up and spent $12,000 and six days creating his new masterpiece along with Bela Lugosi. The film did not quite sweep the 1953 Academy Awards, controversially losing out to the greatest show on earth. (laughs) Bodine was snubbed again as John Ford won for The Quiet Man. Lugosi would never recover from losing to Gary Cooper in the high, in high noon. <laughs> I like this email. <laughs> the film starts off as a nature documentary with stock footage telling us about the dangerous jungle. Our nightclub heroes have been flying to Guam to sing for the troops, but crashed on the little known island of Cola Cola. They meet a group of bilingual Hollywood starlets and Bongo the witch doctor. Of course, Dean Martin, quote unquote falls for the chief's daughter and the film now switches from nature documentary to musical comedy and then to pure horror as you do um, as they learn that the tribe is scared of the reclusive mad scientist dr zabor 
who lives in a Hollywood mansion and is played by a very ill Bella Lugosi. Dr. Zabor is also after the chief's daughter. The stakes are high and the terror is heightened by a man, quote unquote, in a ridiculous gorilla suit running around the set. Trashy and stupid for sure, but 74 minutes of cinema that you'll never forget. And uh, that, thank you, Rob. That is a great email. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if I can call it a great recommendation, but it's certainly <laughs> it's certainly a well-pitched oh. one. Bella Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla. All right. How about one film from your my list? Um, you gave me number 23, which is a movie I forgot I was on here. Inseparable. Um, and this is Wikipedia claims that Kevin Spacey's involvement in this movie made him the first Hollywood star to headline a 100% Chinese funded film. Uh, so it's an entirely Chinese film. Kevin Spacey stars alongside Daniel Wu and uh, Gong Bei Bei. And it is about a young man who has problems at home and work, who is befriended by a mysterious American expat, who I guess helps magically solve his problems. I, it does not sound very good, but I am deeply curious about this because as much as Hollywood films have evolved into throwing in international stars... Um, usually in shamelessly kind of like thankless roles just so that the movie is more marketable internationally. We have not yet seen a ton of like what I would say like A-list American actors going off to do true international productions. Usually it's something that actors end up doing when their kind of careers are really slowing down. In the toilet, yes. Yes. So I do want to know what possessed Kevin Spacey to make this Chinese movie and if it is any good. I suspect it is not, but it, the poster does feature Kevin Spacey in what seems to be a superhero outfit. So, wow. What's I'm that curious. name of that one again? Yeah, Inseparable. Kevin Spacey is inseparable from a Brooklyn gorilla. That's the full title? I Probably. That's okay. the long title. Okay. Colon. <laughs> All right, Matt. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. Three new releases. First up, one of my favorite movies of last year, The Guest, from director Adam Wingard and writer Simon Barrett. It stars Dan Stevens as a returning Army veteran who visits the family of a fallen comrade and becomes their house guest, but who harbors a dark secret. It's part horror movie, it's part action film, and part fairly effective look at the uh, sort of impact of war on veterans and their families. I frankly found it uh, more insightful in that regard than American Sniper, Allison. I would, I would put. I'm not even joking. I, I would. I believe you. I, I would put this one ahead of American Sniper I'm in not that regard. Fight you on that at all? Good, good. It is very highly recommended. Fantastic score. It's scary. It's, it's such, funny. It's so much fun too. It's a lot of fun. It is a really, really good movie. If you've been waiting to check out the guest, you have no excuse anymore. It's now on Netflix. Next up, not one of my favorite movies of last year, but a surprisingly good one nonetheless, given that it is directed by one. Brett Ratner. It is Hercules, and this is now playing on both Netflix and Amazon Prime. The twist on this telling of the classic Greek legend, uh, who's played in the film, often while wearing a giant, hilarious lion skin by Dwayne The Rock Johnson, is that the stories we all know about Hercules never actually happened. In this version, Hercules might not be the son of Zeus who accomplished all these incredible feats. He's kind of just this mercenary guy who's got a lot of big muscles because he's the rock and who uses this reputation he's built up to scare his enemies and make a lot of money so this hercules is nearing the end of his career he agrees to basically do one last job uh protecting a kingdom from outside invaders it's kind of like the magnificent seven in that sense it's got a good supporting cast including ian mcshane who has 
pretty funny, actually, as this prophet, this seer who has predicted his own death, who's waiting for it to happen. And Dwayne Johnson, I think, gives another very charismatic, very sort of lightly comic action performance. Given the subject, given the director, this is actually a pretty fun movie. I would recommend people check it out. It's certainly the better of the two Hercules movies from last year. Well, that's saying almost nothing. <laughs> I have seen, I've seen like hot dog wrappers that were more interesting than The Legend of Hercules, which was terrible. Uh, yeah, this is a, you know, this is a three out of five star movie. But it's, you know, if you're looking for something dumb and fun to watch on a, on a, on a late night on Netflix or Amazon Prime, I think you could do a lot worse than this version of Hercules. And finally, if you are a Star Wars collector, you should know that Plastic Galaxy colon, the story of Star Wars toys, is now available on Hulu. The film is barely just over an hour long, and from what I've seen so far, it's mostly just interviews with collectors um, and uh, people who worked at Kenner and who were involved in the creation of the Star Wars toys, lots of shots of their prized possessions, but... If you are a Star Wars nerd who loves ogling Star Wars junk, that's probably all you need from a movie called Plastic Galaxy colon The Story of Star Wars Toys. So again, that is streaming now on Hulu. All right. Uh, two listener recommendations. Our first one here comes from Harris in Mountain View, California. And Harris writes, I love the show, guys. I was particularly impressed by, oh, I like this part. By two of Matt's recommendations from the last episode, Lost Soul and The Search for General So. Both were fascinating and far more interesting to me than their subjects. The latter took me by surprise, being more about Chinese migration and the Chinese experience in the United States. I may not be a big fan of General So's chicken, but I have a new respect both for the recipe and the history of the dish. Maybe if I could find some place with the original recipe. I also have a recommendation, though. It, too, is a documentary. It is called The Green Girl, and it's about the actress Susan Oliver, who worked in movies and especially in television in the 1960s, most memorably as Vina in the original pilot for Star Trek. Only fair to mention that I'm in the movie, although my appearance is mercifully brief. It's available for rent or purchase on iTunes and a bunch of other places, and it has a website, thegreengirlmovie.com. Thanks. That's from Hank in Mountain View, California. And we got another email here. This one is from Daniel in Orlando, Florida. Daniel writes, Hi, Matt and Allison. I highly recommend Eastern Boys, which is now streaming on Netflix. It's an intelligent yet stylish account of personal relationships entangled in the current immigration conflict in suburban Paris. One of the most authentically multi-ethnic films I've watched, it's a prescient story for all viewers living in our rapidly diversifying society. It's tough-minded yet tender and timely. Eastern Boys is full of unexpected turns. I think your thoughtful listeners would appreciate discovering the movie's unique direction and compelling themes. And that is from Daniel in Orlando, Florida. Thank you, Daniel. All right. One from your my list. You gave me number 75. And this time, number 75 is Apocalypse Now Redux. And the Netflix description of Apocalypse Now Redux is re-edited and remastered with 39 minutes of extra footage. This drama follows an army captain's risky mission into Cambodia to kill a renegade colonel. Of course, it's a classic film by Francis Ford Coppola with Martin Sheen and Marlon Brando. I've actually never seen, though, the Redux version. I've seen the original Apocalypse Now six, eight times. It's a favorite movie of mine. I love that movie. And I've just never gotten around to 
rewatch. I don't think I need 40 more minutes of Apocalypse right. Now. That's, uh, I haven't seen the Redux either for that reason. I mean, maybe listeners been... can write in SVU at filmspottingsvu.com yeah. and say, oh, no, it's way better. You need to see it. But I, I don't know. I feel like I don't need to kind of like sully my the, the perfect majesty of the original apocalypse now with 40 more minutes it doesn't seem like a movie to me that requires it but i you know it's one of those movies that i like so much that i am curious about it and so that's why it's it's on my list there so we don't have to give you the listener's choice options for our next episode because they're the same as the last episode we were recording this early so we haven't closed the voting yet on our last listeners choice options and i can tell you what they are right now and we can go through the voting right now but again the the voting is still open as we are recording this the options there are three different tv options what hot american summer first day of camp on netflix you're the worst on hulu and difficult people on hulu as well and currently the standout is what hot american summer probably not too surprisingly has 62 percent of the vote you're the worst has 29 percent, so could still make a show of it difficult people in a distant third place with just eight percent if you want to make a case for you're the worst allison now is the time to do it i'm going to throw it to you it is about two main characters who are terrible in like very entertaining ways I, I would say the same thing about us, frankly. Exactly. So, so we could probably really relate to this. It's, it's like a pl- it's like if uh, a a not platonic version, I guess, of this podcast with less talking about movies and more kind of like uh, dirtbag LA humor, mm. I would say. And it's uh, it, it really, I think, brings a freshness to romantic comedy. In a way that I, you know, romantic comedy needs some help. It could use some freshness, it really quite frankly. Needs some help. It's getting and, a little musty in there. Yeah, yeah, and this one pulls it off, I think, and uh, and does it really well. Since we've made it the listener's choice option for our next episode, I've had several people say, "Oh, that's a really good show. You should check it out." So I will probably watch it either way. But uh, you know, if you if you want to hear us talk about that one, now is the time to uh, make sure you get your vote counted. Only once. We're not encouraging uh, ballot box stuffing, but if you're interested and you're the worst. Make sure you cast your vote. Otherwise, if you want to hear What American Summer or Difficult People, those options are still available. Everything is still on the table here, folks. You just have to decide what you want us to talk about and make sure you vote at our website, filmspottingsvu.com. Um, and so we will announce the winner of this eventually at our Twitter account, which is, as always, at filmspottingsvu. And then you can join us in binge-watching disgusting amounts of television uh, and then having a conversation about it for that episode, which will be going up on August 18th. Filmspottingsvu.com is also where you can find our show archive as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. And the Filmspotting SVU remix theme song is, as always, by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of Vince's work at vincevandal.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the TV review you pick in the meantime, keep following us on Twitter at Allison Wilmore, at Matt Singer, and follow the show at FilmSpottingSVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions, both from you guys, the SVU listeners, and from ourselves. Keep sending us more listener recommendations to our email address, svu at FilmSpottingSVU.com. We've been getting a lot more it's recently. Been really great, it's been guys. awesome. We love getting them. I've been writing back to as many as I can personally. So, yeah, keep sending us feedback. Keep sending us your listener recommendations. And hey, if you've got some time and you're on iTunes, leave us a review. Give us five stars. Tell people that you're enjoying the show. It helps us reach new listeners, and we appreciate it. For Film Spotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.